Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. We are celebrating what we just sang, that the Lord Jesus has come to save us. He came, he died on the cross on a Friday and rose from the dead on a Sunday. The Sunday before that is what we call Palm Sunday. How many of you have heard of Palm Sunday before? Raise your hand. We're going to be looking at Palm Sunday today from the book of Matthew in chapter 21. And so, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. We're going to consider verses 1 through 17 today, which really is the setting for the rest of 21 and 22. But we're going to look at the setting today and draw some truths here as the Lord addresses us. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you, under the chair in front of you. And you can turn to page 875 in that pew Bible. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. We hope to get to chapter 25 in this series and then pick it up again uh, after a, another Old Testament series and, and then coming back to Matthew later on in this year or next year. But let's look at Matthew 21, verse 1 together. Hear God's word. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a, don on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd, spread, uh, very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? Then he left them, went out of the city of Bethany, to Bethany, 
and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word of Christ, this word about Christ, this word that points to and shows us once again more glories of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. We pray now, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with your love, take the scales off of our eyes, soften the hard parts of our heart, the callous parts of our hearts, and speak, Lord, powerfully, gently, firmly, and in a way that gives life to us. Turn our eyes from looking at empty things and give us life in your ways. Open our eyes to see wonderful things, your wonders here in this word. And satisfy us this morning with your covenant love so that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. Lord Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we all want to be strong and we all want to be powerful. In other words, we want to not need help. We don't like to feel needy. We don't like to feel vulnerable. We don't like to feel like we're a burden to people around us. We want to be strong. We want to feel powerful. And so some of us fool ourselves into thinking we're strong enough to face our problems in our life and in our world on our own. I don't need help. We don't need help. Here's the truth. You're not strong enough. You are not strong enough on your own. And if you are, for this particular problem, you won't be for long. You need help. I need help. We all need help. And so Bonnie Tyler sang the song that every single human has felt or will feel at some point in their life if they're not deluded. Do you know the song by Bonnie, Bonnie Tyler? Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night, I toss and turn, and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong, and he's got to be, anyone know? Fast, and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon, and he's got to be larger than life. I need a hero. That's deep down what we need. We need someone to save us. We want safety. We want security. We want significance in our lives. We want stability. We want happiness. It's not a bad thing to want these things. We want hope. But we have problems in this life. I mean, the biggest problem, you might not feel today, some of you might feel today, but the biggest problem, which is right around the corner, is your death, right? We can't escape it. We're just moving closer to that day. And before that day, many of us will likely face bereavement, where if you don't die first, those you love, those you care about will die. So we have the problem of death, bereavement, aging. We're all aging. 
rejection from others, uncertainty, stress, humiliation. We've got all kinds of fears and problems in this life. So we feel anxious. We feel scared. Sometimes we just feel angry in response to these trials or even just purposeless and bored. Like, what is life about? And so though we are weak and vulnerable, we don't have to be scared or anxious or helpless. We do have a hero. And as we learned last week, if you remember from Acts 20, there were these, we talked about the evil eye or the bad eye that can get us distorted and the good eye. And then we ended the story with two blind men. Do you remember the two blind men who were saying, son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And then Jesus called those two men over and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want to what? We want to see, right? We want our eyesight. And so Jesus gave them their eyesight. And what did they do? It says at the end of chapter 20, when they immediately they could see him, what did they do? They followed him. They followed him. And that's the point. That's the point of the book of Matthew, to follow Jesus. And that's the point of our passage. Follow Jesus. If I were more specific to this passage, I'd say, follow the kingly son of David who has come to save you through temple cleansing. That would be the specifics of this passage, but it's follow Jesus. Follow the kingly son of David who came to save you through temple cleansing. Why should we follow this kingly son of David? Or why should we follow Jesus? The four reasons are because Jesus is the humble king, verses one through five, because he's the son of David who saves, verses six through 11. He's the son of David who saves, Third, because he, Jesus saves through cleansing the temple, verses 12 and 13. And fourthly, Jesus is verified by Scripture. That's the end of the chapter, the rest of it, 14 to the end. Okay? Follow the kingly son of David who came to save you through temple cleansing. Why? Because Jesus, one, is the humble king. Two, he's the son of David who saves. Third, he saves through cleansing the temple. And lastly, Jesus is verified by the scripture. Let's think about these one at a time as we go through the story. So in this first section of the scene, in verses 1 through 3, Jesus gives clear instruction. They are at Bethpage, and they're approaching Jerusalem, and they're at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sends two of his disciples in, verse 2, and he says, Go into the village ahead of you. Go at once, and you're going to find a donkey tied there with a colt. Untie the donkey and the colt and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So Jesus is making an arrangement because Jesus wants to make his grand entrance into Jerusalem, the city of David. And so to make this grand entrance, he chooses his mode of transportation. And his mode of transportation is a what? A donkey. Now, Jesus is going to take this donkey without asking first, right? He's sending his his disciples and says, hey, go, go, just go to that village, go to this one spot, you know the spot, go take this donkey and the colt and bring it back to me. If anyone asks you, just say the Lord needs it and they'll give it. So, um, and so, so why is Jesus doing this? We'll, we'll, get to, we'll get back to that story and why Jesus did that instruction. But why the donkey? It says in verse 4, why the donkey? 
This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Now, what prophet is this? If you have a footnote, this is Isaiah 62.11. Tell daughter Zion, that's Isaiah 62.11. And then the rest of it is Zechariah 9.9. See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. And on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So why does Jesus choose a donkey? Because Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years before that the king would come on a donkey. So Jesus is intentionally seeking to fulfill this prophecy. But let's think about that prophecy second. Let's think about the first prophecy. Tell daughter Zion. That's from Isaiah 62, 11. So, guys, there's like five or six quotes from the Old Testament here. And we're going to all of them. So if you want to follow along, you could turn back with me or you could just listen. But I want to work through them just briefly, okay? So Isaiah 62, 11, that's page 6, 658. If you're fast enough to get there, turn there with me. If not, you could just listen. Isaiah 62, 11, when it says, tell daughter Zion, what is that referring to? Isaiah 62, 11 says, look, Yahweh has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to daughter Zion. And there's a quote, say to daughter Zion. And that's all he's getting from here. But what was he wanting to say to daughter Zion in Isaiah 62, 11? What, what does daughter Zion need to hear? Do you guys see the verse? Look, what is coming? Your salvation is coming. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. In other words, the coming salvation and the coming reward, or the reward and salvation is coming. It's on the way. So daughter Zion, listen. Salvation is coming. The reward is coming. The end is coming. And for them, that sounds to them what this would sound like to us. If I told you, guys, this year, 2024, Jesus is coming back. Trumpet's going to sound. The dead in Christ are going to rise. He is coming this year. What comes to your mind? All of a sudden, you're thinking about Revelation 21, 22. You're like, oh my goodness, it's coming like the final, final end? That's what is thought of here. The final end is coming? The final salvation? The final reward? Perfect harmony and peace? It's coming? Daughter Zion, Jerusalem, salvation is coming. And Jesus came to fulfill that scripture 2,000 years ago, and that's what Matthew's telling us now. Now, Let's go to Zechariah, because the quote is actually, the rest of it is from Zechariah. But we have this idea of coming salvation, coming reward. Now go to Zechariah, turn to the right. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's on page 845 in the Pew Bible. Zechariah 9, 9. Let's go there. It's almost at the end of the Old Testament, right before Malachi and Matthew. Zechariah chapter 9. Now, Nate is going to preach on this tonight, so i got to make sure not to say a lot about it, just a little bit, okay? Just for this sermon. So, Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But then look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed. If you take away the weapon, what does that mean? And he will proclaim what? Peace to the nations. So salvation is coming. Reward is coming. Peace is coming. And then the newer CSB, 2021, says, his dominion will extend from sea to sea. The old CSB says what? 
What's going to extend from sea to sea? Does it say his dominion? Oh, Josh read his rule. Okay. Was that the ESV? Oh, okay. I'm confused now. Well, I was like, oh, man, I didn't know it was different. Yeah. Um, yes, his dominion. It's his dominion. So the point here is that his dominion is coming. His rule, his king dominion, his kingdom is coming. And so let's go back to Matthew 21. So when it says, daughter Zion, salvation is coming, reward is coming. See, go back to uh, Matthew 21, verse 5. Your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey. That means peace is coming. Dominion is coming. It's coming. The final salvation is coming. And so it comes in the form of the king, and the king is riding on a what? Donkey. Riding on a donkey. And what does that show? At least in this passage. Your king is coming to you how? If he's riding on a donkey, he's coming how? You see the word there in verse 5? How is he coming? What's his characteristic? He's what? Gentle. What's another translation for that? Humble? Lowly? Meek? Here comes the king bringing in the kingdom and the peace and the final salvation and the new heavens and the new earth. And he is coming on a donkey, humble and gentle on a donkey. Isn't that like Jesus to come in humility? I mean, think about his birth. When he was, bo- when he was born, where was he laid? In a manger. He was born in a stable. And then he grew up in what town? Nazareth. And what's in Nazareth? Nothing's in Nazareth. <laughs> Nobody cares about Nazareth. Right? It's, it's a small town that's insignificant. Even when the disciples said before he followed Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he comes from a lowly town. He was born in a lowly place. And that reflects the lowliest act of all, that he is God the Son exalted, high and lifted up, ruling and reigning, and then he humbles himself and becomes a man. And he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The two greatest acts of humility for God the Son is to become a human. That's an infinitely low demotion. And then even now as a man who's perfectly righteous to die on a cross for sinners to save his people and bring them to the new earth. I mean, this is the humility of our king. He is humble and riding on a donkey. I mean, this is what Matthew 28, 20, verse 28 says. So just look back a few paragraphs in Matthew 20, verse 28. What does it say? The son of man did not come to what? To be served. But he came to what? Serve. Gentleness lowliness, humility, meekness. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. And how did he come to serve? To give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. Jesus is not like the nations. He's not like the pagans. He's not like you. And he's not like me. He's not selfish. He is not selfish. He's not only trying to preserve himself. He cares about others. He came to serve. He came gentle and lowly. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we are so glad you're here with us today. Children, if you're not Christian, we're so glad you're here with us today. 
we have good news for you. Jesus, the king, is humble and gentle, and he lowers himself to serve you. He has come to save you from your sins. He has come to lay down his life for you, to die and take hell for you, so you don't have to take hell for yourself. He came to take judgment for you, so you don't have to be judged for your sin, because you are a sinner. And you deserve God's judgment, just like I do. And it's coming, but Jesus came as the gentle one to save you from your sins. So if you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you, trust in Jesus. He comes to you in humility and gentleness and in power as a servant to serve you and save you from your sins because he gave his life as a ransom for you if you would repent from your sins and trust in him. So trust in Jesus. And if you're a Christian, here's good news for you as well. Especially if you're a Christian today who's discouraged. Any Christian here need need encouragement? Here's encouragement from Jesus in his humility and his humi- yeah, in his being humble. Jesus said to us in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will. So if you're a Christian, praise God, we have a gentle and humble king who wants to give you, discouraged Christian, rest. Anyone else here tired and weary? Come to Jesus and he will give you rest. And now if Jesus is the king who's gentle and lowly and humble, here's a church application. Church family, let's not be impressed by what your your friends are impressed by what your coworkers are impressed by, what the world and social media is impressed by. Don't even be impressed by what churches are impressed by. Let's be impressed by humility and servant-mindedness. That's true greatness according to Jesus. Most of all, let's be impressed with Jesus himself. So follow the kingly son of David who came to save you through temple cleansing. First, because Jesus is the humble king. Secondly, because Jesus is the son of David who saves. He's the son of David. Now we know he's the son of David. We knew he was the king. But you know that Jesus never let people call him the king or son of David out loud? The first time, remember when he'd heal people, he'd tell them to be quiet and tell no one? Hey guys, keep it a secret. Don't tell anyone. And you're like, what? Why is he doing that? Because it wasn't time then. But Jesus has made a switch. He's turned a corner now. When the blind men called out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy. They were shouting out loud over the crowd. And you know what Jesus did? He acknowledged them. That's the first time he let someone call it out out loud and let it be called of him where he accepted it. And now he's fulfilling this passage. As we learn in verse 6, they come and they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now they're calling him the son of David. Now, Jesus, let's back up now to the story here. Verse six says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed. So you guys tell me, don't look at your Bible. I want you to do it from memory. What did Jesus, Jesus tell them to do? How many did he, did he instruct? One, two, three, four, how many? Two, two disciples. What did he tell them? Shout it out loud, just say it. Go to the town nearby and what? Get a what? Get a donkey, untie it, 
and the colt, and then what? Bring it to me. And then he gives a concession. If something happened, if what? If the owner what? If the owner tries to stop you, what should you say? The Lord needs it. And what are they going to do? Go, go right ahead. Well, if the Lord needs it, go, go, go ahead and steal the donkey. Or no, take the donkey. Right, take the donkey. Now, why, why would they just do that? Why would they let him do? Why would they just randomly let the Lord do this? This is the Sunday before he's crucified. Jesus' popularity as a, is at an all-time high. It's at a fever pitch. You know why? Because he did one of his greatest miracles just a few days before. The raising of Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. He raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. And so, and it was just right down. And so all those nearby, Bethpage, Bethany, all of those towns on the Mount of Olives, just a mile from Jerusalem, I mean, there was a huge crowd when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It was a huge deal. So everyone there knows who Jesus is. So, it, so you're just like, man, have you ever seen like a man who's been in the tomb for four days, like get up and walk out of the tomb? It was crazy. And so, so um, that news spread. And so any town there, when you say, hey, the Lord, you know, the guy who raised that man from the dead a few days ago? Yeah, he needs your donkey. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yes, he could have my donkey. So he's, his, his popularity is at an all-time high. And anyone, so everyone wants to support him in this, but he's not really popular among those in Jerusalem and particularly the leaders. So Jesus is orchestrating his own PR here. He's his own hype man. He, is, he knows that if he gets a donkey, he's fulfilling scripture, and he's supposed to go right into the donkey, uh, into Jerusalem, like the king, like the prophecy said. And so Jesus knows that he gets a donkey. And so when he gets on the donkey... And everyone there in the Mount of Olives is all feeling him, and they're all knowing that he is, he's different, right? He raised a man from the dead when they know that, and now he's, he sits on a donkey. They're like, oh, man, he's coming. It's here. He's coming to fulfill the prophecies. Everyone was looking for the king. So Jesus gets on the donkey, and when he does, what do people do? What do the people do? They do two different things. Well, before the shouting, what do they do? They do two actions. What's that? Palm branches. Okay, that's the second one. Yes, well, the first one is, what do they do? They remove their cloaks and they put it on the ground. So now they want the donkey to ride on the cloaks and on palm branches. The cloaks on the road probably symbolize the crowd's submission to Jesus as king. I, I think of... Um, I've been in Exodus last week for the Simeon Trust preaching workshop, but we're, you know, where, where they need donations for the tabernacle and people just start giving all their stuff, like out of submission to the Lord. Oh, we need, you know, we need gold. And so people start taking off their, their gold rings and their earrings and they just start giving it for, for out of submission to the cause. So here they're taking off their cloaks and throwing it there on the road, out, maybe out of submission to Jesus as king. That's what happened in 2 Kings 9, verse 13. And then the branches... The palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. You could look at John 12, 13 for that. But here is, you know, the nation of Israel. And by the way, when we look at Zechariah and Isaiah and these other prophecies, when we talk about the final salvation to Zion, when, when we're talking about final salvation, which nation is going to be lifted up? The nation of Israel above the other nations. That's the promise. 
Israel will be high and lifted up, and the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, Zion, will be lifted up above all, for all the nations to see the exaltation, the prosperity, the power, the security, the reign of Israel, and the reign of Jerusalem and Zion, the city of David. So with these palm branches on the ground and these cloaks on the ground, there's these connections that they're seeing something significant is happening here. And so what do they say in Matthew 21, verse 9? They shout out, Hosanna. And what does Hosanna mean? It's not Hebrew, it's not Greek, it's Aramaic, but it means save us. Okay? We'll, we'll pick that up later, but let's leave that word Hosanna to the side just for a second. They say Hosanna, and they, there's this phrase here that's not highlighted or not emboldened because it's not a quote from script from the Old Testament. Hosanna to whom? The son of David. Now, the son of David is a big theme for this passage. Hosanna to the son of David. If you're calling him the son of David, you're calling him the son of the what? David was the what? Was the king. So if he's the son of David, he's the son of the king, which means he is the king, right? He's the, he's the heir. He's in the bloodline, right? He, he is the heir to the throne, and he is the promised king who would sit on the throne of David. You can look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 for that promise, but David was promised that he would always have a descendant, offspring, a son, sitting on the throne. So you, to call him son of David, say, blessed Hosanna to the king, to the Davidic king, the Messiah. And so what do they say of this, the Messiah? Going back to the quote from scripture. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So they're crying out, save us. Now this is, keep your finger here in Matthew 21. This is from Psalm 118. So turn to Psalm 118 in your Bible. Psalm 118. And let's look at verses 25 and 26. So Psalm 118, 25 and 26, what does it say? Verse 25 begins with what? Lord, what? Save us. Hosanna. Now, again, Hosanna is the Aramaic. It's not in the Hebrew, but that's what it's saying. Lord, Yahweh, save us. And then it says, Lord, please grant us success. And then verse 26, he who comes in the name of Yahweh is what? Blessed. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And what's the request or the prayer in verse 25? Yahweh, what? Save us. Verse 21 points to the salvation. I give thanks to you because you have answered me and you have become my what? Salvation. And we're going to pick this up later in the, later in the same chapter for our next sermon on Matthew. The stone that the builders rejected has become the? cornerstone this came from the lord it is wondrous in our sight this is the day that the lord has made let's rejoice and be glad in it that's speaking of the day of the coming of the king but here hosanna means save us lord that's why we're saying hosanna you are the god who saves us worthy of all our praises because we're talking about save us that's what hosanna means save us you're the god and we need a hero we need salvation. We need someone. We need a savior. We need someone to save us. Now, we think, rightly, from our sins, but we need someone to save us from death. 
We need to see, say, someone to save us from our own deteriorating health. We need someone to save us from our selfishness. We need someone to save us from the problems in our society. We need someone to save us from the breakdown of our relationships. We need salvation from anxiety. We need salvation from everything. We need peace and prosperity and harmony. That's what we need. And that's what God promised. So, son of David, come, save us. Bring in your sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule. Reverse all of the curse and all the brokenness and all the evil and all the darkness. Turn it all back, Lord, and bring in your kingdom. Hosanna. Save us, son of David. And so, going back to the story, they're calling him the king. They're calling for salvation. They're calling for the day that the Lord has made. And so he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And when he gets there, the whole city is in an uproar saying, what's the question of the Jerusalem, those in Jerusalem? Who is this? Now, who knows who this is? All those on the Mount of Olives know who he is. They know the miracle. It happened in their neighborhood, right? They know who he is. Those who are cheering know who he is. But those in Jerusalem, when he enters the temple... Like there's a, there's a lot of busyness there. There's a huge, I mean, the temp, the, there's, it's like 30 acres, the Temple Mount. It's huge. You can fit thousands and thousands of thousands of people on there. Like, and, and it's, it's during the festival. So you got thousands of people there. And like, what's all that uproar? You guys, you know, like you hear a crowd like somewhere far away. And so everyone like in the, on the Temple Mount, like looking over the wall, you hear this huge shouting and commotion. You see this weird side of a man riding on a donkey with palm branches and cloaks and this cheering and shouting, Hosanna, son of David, save us, Hosanna in the highest. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's shouting and singing and dancing. And there's this huge crowd in the Temple Mount like, what? What's going on out there? He comes in and they're like, who's this, right? Who are you? As he rides in powerfully on his mighty steed, right? The donkey. And so the, the crowd answers. They know the answer. In verse 11, they say, well, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so those are like three marks of like insignificance, right? He's on a donkey. He's from Nazareth in Galilee. Like, who is this, like this big Oh, prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But he's a prophet. And Jesus is a prophet, even more than a prophet. But everyone is waiting now for this son of David, the king, to bring in the final salvation. Let me apply this before we move to our third point. So church family, what does this mean for us as a church and Christians? Look to Jesus for the final salvation. Look to Jesus for the final salvation. We could still cry out, Hosanna, God save us. That's another way today of crying out, Maranatha. Come, Lord, come. Remember Jesus in your initial salvation but look to Christ to come again for your final salvation. You have hope. There is hope, so cry out Maranatha. Christ has come to bring his kingdom, his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule, and it's for you. Church family, there's a way that we could remember the initial and final salvation. You know how we do that regularly every week? Through the Lord's Supper. We proclaim that the bread is, we say, this is my body, given for you and the cup this cup is the what new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sin so look back to your initial salvation at the cross but then we say for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death and what do we say 
until he comes. And Christ said, I'm not going to drink this with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So when you take the Lord's Supper, you look back to your initial salvation, but you also look forward to your final salvation, and you don't just look by yourself. We look together as a church family. There might not be any more important regular thing you do in your life. Well, there isn't. Then hearing God's word in preaching and then in taking the Lord's Supper together every week. So I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, but tonight here at 5 o'clock p.m., we're gathering together to remember our initial salvation and our final salvation as we take the Lord's Supper together. And I want to encourage you to take the Lord's Supper every week to remember the Lord's death until he comes. Some of you can't make it every Sunday night. I don't want you to feel guilty, but maybe you could come once a month or once every other month. And if you can, you should come on a Lord's Supper night, which would be a night like tonight. If you're not a Christian, what does Jesus say to you? Matthew 4.17. Look at Matthew 4.17, everyone, because this is one of the key verses in Matthew. You just got to keep this in your mind as you're reading the book of Matthew. Matthew 4.17 is flowing into this passage. So this is a good application to non-Christian, those who are not Christian, but even to Christians. Matthew 4.17, Jesus said, from that point on, he began to preach. What's his, what is his, what's his command? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. If you're not a Christian, God is telling you right now through my voice, God is telling you, repent. Turn from your sin and turn from your righteousness. Turn to Jesus because the king has come and the kingdom has come and the kingdom is still coming. So repent. And if you're discouraged, know that this lowly king, this king has come for you. He came for you. He's coming to you and he will come soon. Okay, so the two reasons why we need to follow the kingly son of David who has come to save us through the temple cleansing is because Jesus is the humble king. That was number one. Number two, because Jesus is the son of David who saves. Number three, third reason why you need to follow Jesus is because Jesus saves through cleansing the temple. This is kind of point three. I'm going to apply it again at the end of point four, but let's just get this out now. That Jesus is the one who saves through cleansing the temple. Look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. So what, what's happening in the temple? What are they doing? Remember, there's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people on the temple mount. There's a lot of busyness going on. There's people selling and buying. There's money changers there. Because the reason is because within the temple, there was a, there was a sort of market of commercial activity that enabled pilgrims throughout the diaspora of Jews when they come to Israel to share in the, the temple activities, to participate in it. So if you're traveling from far away, you're not going to bring all your sacrifices. That's a lot to carry. If you're traveling from miles and miles away and you're traveling by foot and with your animals, you're going to bring all your sacrifices to, to the temple Man, that, if you take a three-day journey, a 10-day journey to, Israel, to, to Jerusalem, a five-day journey, you're not bringing all your sacrifices for all your family members. That's just a whole lot. And we have five kids in our home now, six, one, one in heaven. We have five kids. That's a lot in the modern day. That's a, that's a few kids in that day. So that's a small amount of kids. That's a small family in that day. So if you've got seven kids, you've got 10 kids, and you've got to bring lambs for each of them, 
You got to bring sacrifices for all of them. Like, that's just a whole lot to carry. So you know what you do? Just bring money. Whatever money you have. And if you have a different town and you have a different currency, you go to the Temple Mount, and what do they do? You got money changers there. We're going to exchange your money. You don't need, you, you, that's fine. You don't have our currency. We got you. Come here. Here's the exchange rate. Give us your money. We'll give you that money. Now you can go and buy your, your animals for sacrifice that are approved, and now you can go do your sacrifice. It's a convenience that is very helpful. It's good to have money changers there. It's good to not have to have everyone burdened to bring your animals to the temple. That's a good thing. It's a helpful service. But Jesus is mad about it. Why is he mad about it? Why is he upset such that he wants to, that he kicks out those buying and selling? I mean, if it's a good service, why are you mad, bro? Why is he mad? Anyone have a guess? Why is he mad? Well, he tells us in verse 13, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Does anyone have a guess? Why, why? let me hear two or three guesses from you guys. It's okay to be wrong, it's just a guess. Anyone want, I want, I want two or three of you to guess. What's that? They're extorting them? Okay, so yeah, so they're selling, but they're taking advantage of them? Extorting them? Good. What else, Ricky? They're doing, it wrong. They're doing it wrong. What might be the wrong way? Do you have any specific or just general? Okay, yeah, general. So they're doing, they're doing the, so even though they're doing good service, they're doing it wrong, and maybe extorting might be the way they're doing it wrong. Anyone else? One more guess. Okay, maybe it's on the Sabbath, maybe on a day that's forbidden. Okay. Now, because we're not told here specifically, but... Um, yeah, if it's having to do with money, maybe there's, you're certainly vulnerable. Like you need to make a sacrifice. So if the exchange rate is really poor or they're taking advantage of you in some way, like that, you're very vulnerable at that point because you have no recourse. I mean, if they don't change your money or if they, if they, if they like hike up the prices, you need to make a sacrifice. Like that, you traveled five days with your family of 10 to get over here and now you can't make a sacrifice. They do, you're going to pay whatever, pay whatever it costs, right? Just to, to get, to, to do your, 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 um, your offering. But we get a clue from the actual text. Look, look, so um, it says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making a den of thieves. So we have two Old Testament passages to go to. So we've got to go to them. Isaiah 56, 7. Turn to Isaiah 56, 7. And if you, if you guys have a pew Bible, shout out the number for me so that I could know what page number it's on. I didn't write this one down. Isaiah 56, 7. 653, thank you. Page 653, <clears throat> it says, I will, this is God speaking about the final salvation when he's restoring Israel among the nations. Here's the final salvation, verse seven. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. Okay, well, I just want to pause before we go on. Just, I want you to get the full imagery of acceptable. Do you know why God is a, why God loves sacrifices? Why is it acceptable when you burn them? When you burn the, the the sacrifice, what happens? What comes out of the burning of a sacrifice? Smoke, and it rises where? Where does the smoke go? Up, and where's it going up to? In the imagery here, going up where? Up to heaven, and God sees and smells the aroma of the sacrifice, and He is pleased. It's acceptable to him. He loves his people 
making worthy, humble, worshipful sacrifices to him. And so this is what the temple's gonna do. So it'll be an acceptable offering, acceptable on my altar. And then it says, why? For my house will be called a house of prayer. For whom? For all nations, all ethnic people groups. Mark is going to pick up that theme a lot stronger than Matthew. Matthew picks up all ethnic people groups more at the end of his, like later on in the, in the book. But that it's a theme, like if Israel and the temple is exalted and the offerings are, are done well and the, the, the nation is a holy nation and a royal priesthood, then it will bless all the nations. It will mediate the divine blessing through Israel at the temple for all the nations. That's the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament. And so why is Jesus mad? Maybe because they're going against the purpose of this, of this, of it's, it's about acceptable offerings. It's about the nations coming to God. It's about that. It's about prayer. It's not about money. It's not about profit. It's not about um, extorting people and, and taking advantage of people or even just the mere duty of it. It's about a prayerful, worshipful spirit. And so Jesus is upset by how the commerce has become more commercialized in a, in a way that went too far. Maybe that's why he's angry here. So he cleanses the temple. They've lost the purpose and direction of the temple. And then there's a second text, Jeremiah 7, 11. He says, you have, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So let's go to Jeremiah. So if you're in Isaiah, just go to the right. The next book is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Jeremiah 7, 11. And someone, again, please tell me the page number once you're there. 673? Yeah, 673. Thank you. 673, Jeremiah 7, 11. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. What, what is this den of robbers? We got to go back to verse 3. Picture the scene here. Jeremiah, have you ever had, well, before you look at it, have you ever had like, like gone to a, a gathering where there's like protesters outside and they're shouting thing and like you have to almost get through the protesters to get into the gathering and then outside there's someone shouting? God tells Jeremiah to be a protester. Jeremiah, go to my temple and stand there and start shouting at the, at the temple. So let's look at it. I'll just go from Jeremiah 7.1. This is what, this is the word of, that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of the house of Yahweh and there call out this word. So here's him protesting. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship Yahweh. So what's his protesting sign say? Here's what it says. This is what Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel says. Correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting... This is the temple of Yahweh, 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 the temple of Yahweh. Don't trust those deceitful words. That Don't trust that chant. Don't find your security in the fact that this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Instead, verse 5, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the pilgrim who's traveling through, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, 
If you do that, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, what's your problem? What do you guys keep doing? But look, you keep trusting in what? Deceitful words that cannot help. And what's the deceitful words? What's the deceitful chant? The temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. Verse 9. Do not steal. Murder, commit adultery, swear false. Or do you steal? Murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? So do you do that? And then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name, Yahweh, and say, we're rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts because this is the temple of Yahweh. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is Yahweh's declaration. So there's Jeremiah standing outside the gate, protesting. And what's his point? You guys have made the temple a what? What have they made it? A what? A refuge? What else? What's wrong with that, though? What's wrong with just believing in a chant? They've almost made the place and the chant like a what? Like a god? What else? Superstitious? What'd you say? Salvation? Yeah, there's a lot of superstition here, like a good luck charm almost. Right? Like, I could do whatever I want throughout the week, but this is the temple of Yahweh. I can commit adultery, but I could come back because this is the temple of Yahweh. I could go worship other gods throughout the week, but I could come back because this is the temple of Yahweh. And we're good, right? We got the temple here. We got the covenant God who saved us from Egypt here. We got his word. We got the creator here. So I could do whatever I want with my life. I could extort money from people. I could take advantage of people. I could neglect the fatherless and the poor and the immigrant. I could do that because this is the temple of Yahweh. And Jeremiah is saying, how dare you? Repent from your superstition. As if just because you have a chant and you have a place, you're safe before God in your hypocrisy. In your hypocrisy. That's why Jesus is upset when you get to Matthew 21. Let's go back to Matthew 21. Salvation is supposed to come to the temple, but if you treat the temple like a good luck charm, and you think you're safe just because you have the temple, and you got the sacrifices, and you have the rituals, and you have your Bible, it's not good enough. God sees through the fakery. He sees through the act. He sees through the, 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 the fake mask you put on or the mask you put on when deep down your heart is full of sin and hypocrisy. We have the same temptations today, don't we? And you don't just have to be tempted by the temple in Jerusalem to lose the purpose of why are we at church? What is the purpose of a church gathering? What is the purpose of having a budget? What's the purpose of giving? What's the purpose of singing? What's the purpose of a sermon? What's the purpose of having Bibles? What's the purpose of membership? What's the purpose of greeting each other? We could lose our focus on the purpose of why we do things for other helpful things. Again, exchanging money for offerings in the temple is an okay thing. It's a helpful thing. But when you lose the purpose of why it's here and what we're doing... You are prostituting and desecrating the temple of God. 
And then when you compromise with your sin and you refuse to repent and you make excuses for your pride and your arrogance and your good reasons of why it's okay for you to keep that pet sin in your life, and then you come to God's place to worship with God's people, you are prostituting the church. You're desecrating the church, the people of God. Church membership is not a good luck charm. Listening to sermons is not a good luck charm. Preaching, for me, I'm a preacher. A pre- preaching is not a good luck charm. I could preach and be a hypocrite, right? I can. You can sing and be a hypocrite. You can be a member and be a hypocrite. And God sees through all of that, and he's not pleased. So we're called to check our superstition. We're called to check our hypocrisy. We're called to check our focus. What are we doing here? And why are you here? As I was looking at this for my own life, here's my own confession of, I'm like, Lord, where's the hypocrisy in my life? There's more. Here's one that came immediately to my mind that I wrote down. I'll share it with you. You can pray for me and hold me accountable. I put Jesus confronts my false security and lethargy in not reaching out to some of our members who are shut in. The temple was made to point to the prayer and worship of God's people. The church and the pastorate are made to care for the shut-ins, and I can't get over my guilt of not calling them. I can't just push that to the side. I need to repent, and I did, but I'm just telling you now. I need to call some of the—I've been calling a few members this week that haven't called for a while, but there's still a few others that I haven't called. And quite frankly, I'm scared to call because I'm just—I feel guilty that I haven't called for a long time. And like, just the longer it goes, the more guilty I feel. I just kind of push it to the side of my life and responsibilities. And the Lord's saying, no, you can't do that. Why are we a church? What's the purpose of it? I don't know what it is for you. What is your hypocrisy? Where have you got comfortable with compromise in your life? And you just kind of push it to the side. Whatever that is, know that Christ came to save us through cleansing the temple. And to cleanse the temple, he rebukes us for our sin that's desecrating the temple. So follow the kingly son of David who came to save you through temple cleansing. Lastly, so because he's the humble king, because he's the son of David who saves, because he saves through cleansing the temple, and lastly and really briefly, because the scriptures point to Jesus' kingship. Verses 14 to 17. Look at it here. The blind and the lame came to him, and he's healing them in the temple. That healing, by the way, is because of the cross. Look at Matthew 8, 17 for homework. But you could just see that even every healing of Jesus is a blood-bought healing. It's a cross-purchased healing. It's a gospel healing. But let's move on. I don't have time to develop that now. Verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were mad. Dude, you're letting these children call you the king? You're letting them call you the Davidic king here in this temple where we rule and Rome is watching over us? You're going to let them call you the Davidic king here? And Jesus says, yes or no? Will he let them do it? Yeah. Yeah. His response is, haven't you read the Bible? It says in the Bible, Psalm 8-2, you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Now, in Psalm 8-2, that's speaking about praise of Yahweh. And if they're praising Jesus, Jesus is sort of alluding to the fact that Jesus is not just the son of David. He's also Yahweh. He's also God. And these babies will praise him. 
So as these children are, are putting their palm branches down along with their parents, so even uh, yesterday, oh no, today, I love how Aaron, uh, one of our interns is, and you guys know Aaron, uh, one of our song leader and all that, but he brought Ezra, you guys know Ezra? his oldest, his firstborn. He brings Ezra to, to our prayer in the morning. And there's Ezra. And we're praying for you guys this morning. I'm like, Ezra, can you pray too? Yeah, I'll pray. Okay, so we assign Ezra a prayer request and Ezra prays with us. And out of the mouth of the child, Ezra comes praises to Yahweh, praises to Jesus, praises to God through the temple and this church gathering today. From the mouth of children and babies will come the praise of the Lord. So children, you have a very powerful ministry in our church. Actually, just you being here and trying to listen is a powerful ministry. And so kids, learn your Bible. Learn to talk about Jesus more and more. Learn to say things about Jesus out loud to your friends, to your family, to the church family. Sing with us. And I know you already sing with us, but keep singing with us. Learn your catechism. Read your Bible, learn the catechism so you know how to talk about God and praise God from truth. God has given you a voice to speak, so speak for Jesus' praise. And the point of it all, what made them mad? What was the title that made the chief priests mad at Jesus? In verse 15, what made them indignant? What really ticked them off? Calling him son of David. And that's the point. Now, this son of David is the theme that's going to that's gonna link chapter 21 and 22. The very end of 22 ends with son of David. So this is, this is going to be the theme throughout the whole next, two, next, next three sermons. This sermon and the next two sermons will be about Jesus being the son of David. But the point here is it makes them angry. You're not the king. You're not the Messiah. You're not going to take over for us, and you're not going to bring Rome's wrath upon us. But Jesus is the son of David. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the Messiah. He is the ruler. He is the healer. He is the one who brings final salvation and peace and rest and health and holiness and harmony and righteousness to his people. He's the one who brings his kingdom. The king comes with the kingdom, with his empire. And he's doing it now through his Holy Spirit and through the body of Christ. He is bringing his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule. Here in Bellflower, he's going to keep spreading it until he returns. So, because the Bible says he's the son of David, but would Jesus point to the, the chief priests and the leaders? Don't trip. Don't, don't, don't trip over this. It's, it's true. The Bible says it. I am the Messiah. I am the son of David. So believe the Bible when the Bible points to Jesus. Believe the claims of Jesus. And let's now bring this to a close. Okay, to summarize and close. Follow the kingly son of David who came to save you through temple cleansing. Why? Four reasons. Because Jesus is the humble king. Number two, he's the son of David who saves. Number three, he saves through cleansing the temple. And I'm going to come back to that right here at the end. And number four, Jesus is verified as the king through scripture. So I'm calling you to follow Jesus. Or in the words of Jesus here, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. He is your king. He is your God. He's holy. He's good. He cleanses us. He rebukes us as his temple. I want to think about that here, right here at the close. He cleanses us, but here, how does he cleanse them? I mean, because Jesus cleanses us, but we're still his people. How does he cleanse the people? How does he cleanse the temple here? What does he do with the money changers? He what? He overturns the tables 
But what does he do with the people? He what? He whips them out. I, I don't see a whip here, but maybe. I mean, in John, John 2, he does a whip, but that might be in the beginning of his ministry. But what does he do? It's not really the whipping part, but the, the end of your, what you said. He throws them out. He kicks them out, right? He throws them out of the what? Out of the temple. Out of, out, he throws them out of the temple mount. That's how he cleanses the, te- the temple, by removing them from God's presence and blessing. How does he cleanse us? Does he remove us from God's presence and blessing? I mean, we, do we deserve to be removed from God's presence and blessing? Do we deserve to be thrown out or whipped out? Do we deserve that? Yes. Why? Because God is holy and we are sinners. Yet it was Jesus who was put out of the camp. It was Jesus who was outside the temple. When he was crucified, he wasn't crucified in the walls of the city. He was kicked out. That's where you put those who are crucified. You put them at the gate outside the temple. And there, away from the presence of God, banished from God's holiness, you're there to be crucified and die. That's where those who are unclean deserve to be, outside the camp. And Jesus went outside the camp for us. So Hebrews 13, 11 through 14 says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Why? So that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to Jesus outside the camp and bear his disgrace. Follow him. Suffer with him. Bear his disgrace with him. Why? Hebrews 11, Hebrews 13, 14 says, For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one that is to come. Is the kingdom coming? Will Jesus return? Is the new Jerusalem coming? It is, right? That's our city. Christ died for us by going outside the camp for us. Let's go outside with him. Let's follow him. The kingly son of David who came to save us through temple cleansing. Not by kicking us out, but by being kicked out for us. So that we can be cleansed and still be his people. Let's follow him together and help others follow him together. As we disciple our neighbors and the nations. Let's pray. Lord, through these different visions and angles on Jesus and his glory, we pray that you would give us life and love and light in Jesus Christ by your spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.